So I would like to offer some reflections this evening on the the theme of this weekend. Mindfulness, peace and happiness. What perhaps we might understand by these and how they're connected, how they're related. How they support each other. I think it would be uh, fair to say that there is a for all the uh, many differences between uh, human beings, there is a, a universality to the interest in happiness, a universality to the interest in the end of dissatisfaction and suffering. And although this interest is universal and quite understandable, it's also quite clear that the attainment of happiness, of satisfaction, of the end of suffering is not universal, is not inevitable. It's not somehow <coughs> what happens just automatically by virtue of being here. And I think it's really important to in engaging with spiritual practice and spiritual teachings, that we understand that the struggles or the challenges of life are not somehow our fault and our, sometimes it seems, inability to find happiness or struggles in realizing true satisfaction in our lives are not born of some fault that we are to blame for, but really arise because we haven't learnt, we haven't been shown or taught, in fact, and therefore haven't understood what the basis of true happiness is, what the basis of true peace is. And this is essentially what the teachings of the Buddha are concerned with, understanding what gives rise to happiness. What is the basis of peace? And how we can bring that more and more fully into our lives. There's this interesting circumstance of life that we're here. We don't necessarily know quite how it was or is that we came to be born. And yet we're here. At least some of the time we're here. As we notice on a meditation retreat, actually, quite a lot of the time we're not here. And that has to do with the fact that the condition of being here is not always easy. That what we encounter when we're really present and connect with our experience is sometimes challenging. The tendency is to somehow disconnect from that because we don't know another way of resolving it. And yet that tendency to disconnect from our experience doesn't provide any useful solution. The tendency to be lost in our thinking minds doesn't really resolve the things we're thinking about, let alone the underlying issue, the fundamental questions of life. Now the Buddha is often quoted for the statement, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This sounds like an interesting thing to be teaching. We might relate to that. And yet as a, a friend in America once pointed out to me, he said, well, that's interesting. That sounds like two things. The Buddha says, I teach only one thing, but actually he says suffering and the end of suffering. And My friend went on to reflect and consider that maybe in fact the Buddha just started off teaching suffering. I teach suffering, just one thing. And maybe that wasn't so popular. Or maybe it wasn't so necessary because we already know about that. And so then this sense of what is being taught about or what we're concerned and engaged with here is suffering and the end of suffering. And both of these need to be included. Because if we attempt to, if we think this is only about the end of suffering, somehow some goal 
or conclusion or completion of our path, then the tendency is often to want to somehow get there now or, you know, yesterday preferably. And once we get there, we imagine we might be able to sort of hang out and relax in that destination. So including both of these, it's not just about suffering. But nor is it just about the end of suffering. It's about both because they're in relationship to each other. And understanding that relationship is to resolve the dilemma of life. To be able to live in the midst of the suffering that is without being bound by it. Without adding to it. And without being precluded by that suffering and struggle and challenge that we might encounter in life from also realizing and understanding and living in contact with its ending, its resolution, our liberation from it. And this is what we're engaged in. This is what the the path of meditation is concerned with. We talk in meditation about and let's talk a lot about being present, about being mindful, about bringing this quality of attentiveness to our experience. And we've said in various ways and quite a few different times over this day how that's essentially what we're seeking to do here, what we're learning to do here. Whether we're using our breath or whether we're using our feet when walking meditation or whether we're simply attending to what is arising in some other circumstances while taking a meal or going for a walk, seeking to be connected, seeking to be present. There's something very powerful about this capacity and quality of mind that we have, that we have access to. The Buddha once said that mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless live as if already dead. He went on to conclude. When we're living unconsciously, we're simply enacting our history. We're simply repeating stories, patterns, views, perceptions and thoughts that come from the past and not necessarily even our own past. They may be ones that we've acquired from other people, from their past. Stories, perceptions, images of ourselves, views about the world, habits of reactivity. And this a loss of aliveness that happens when we live unconsciously. There's a loss of aliveness that is deeply painful to us. So in beginning to cultivate mindfulness and beginning to establish ourselves in a conscious quality of presence, of awareness, of being able to see and recognize what's happening now, which includes the seeing and the recognizing of how often we're anywhere or everywhere, it seems, other than present. But this too is included because we can recognize that. And sometimes what's happening in the present moment is that we're recognizing how lost we spend our time or how lost we may have just been in some story or reaction. So... The link, essentially, or the the, the way that mindfulness serves liberation is that it brings us into contact with the immediacy and the direct experience of our life because this is the place in which we can learn. This is the place in which we can understand that which we need to learn, need to understand in order to live in accordance with the way our life actually is in order to be at peace in the midst of a world that may not itself be always peaceful. And we are offered in support of this process teachings that point 
us to the wisdom, to that understanding that we need. But we also need to check them out and see for ourselves what is true. And again, being mindful, being aware of our experience is what enables us to see what is true for ourselves. Because hearing it and believing it because we've been told doesn't really seem to work. It doesn't really seem to make the kind of difference that we seek in our lives. And in terms of that, the fundamental understanding or the primary understanding that the Buddha suggested we consider, reflect upon and look to see, is it true for ourselves? He said that the nature of our actions determines the quality of our experience. Specifically in relationship to the intentions we have when we act. That actions which come from wholesome or skillful intentions lead to well-being and happiness. That actions that lead to that come from unwholesome or unskillful intentions lead to unhappiness. And that this is the basic way things are. This is the basic nature of experience. And he he went on to point out that when we we act from a place of selfishness or greediness, from anger or hatefulness, or from a disconnection and lack of clear understanding about the way things are, that we tend to create suffering for ourselves and we tend to create suffering for others. But when we act from a sense of connection, when we act out of generosity and have a sense of sharing our lives, rather than simply being concerned about ourselves. So when we act from kindness and compassion and caring for others as well as ourselves, rather than disregarding others in our behaviour, being unconcerned as to whether we harm them or actively wishing to. When we act from kindness and caring and compassion, this brings happiness to our lives and to the lives of others. This isn't rocket science. This is something I think we all know. And yet, it's not so easy to live that truth. Spiritual teachings in all traditions pointed out pretty clearly, one way or another. But it's not easy to live that because the power of the forces within us that lead us to act in ways that are self-centered in our neediness or our greediness and our desperate cravings and wantings and demands and desires are powerful. And the forces within us that lead us to resist or reject experiences, to push away, to be willing consciously or unconsciously to harm or participate in the harming of others that we imagine to be distant from us or not important to us. These forces have deep roots in our lives and in our being. And it's not that we can just stop. Otherwise, I think, really the world would be a very different place than it is. Because human beings are not essentially, in their, in their hearts, I don't believe, cruel or selfish. That's not how we wish to live our lives. But so often we can see in our own lives and certainly in the world around us that others and ourselves at times are compelled or feel compelled to act in certain ways. Sometimes imagining that that will actually serve our happiness and our well-being. But if we look carefully, what we see is that that's not the case. This is what the Buddha called the law of karma, of action and result. And this understanding is why we take the precepts, that we take the intention to cause, so far as we're able, no harm in our actions while we're on retreat and hopefully beyond that in our lives. Not because it means we're good or that somehow that proves that we're okay or somehow morally sort of acceptable, 
but because we hopefully understand it leads to happiness. And there's an enlightened self-interest or an enlightened selfishness in caring and being concerned for others in refraining from causing harm. But as we've seen in the meditation, it's not an easy thing to to choose how we respond to circumstances, that mostly reactions tend to drive our mind. Mostly we're not even present when things are taking place. We're overwhelmed by the patterns and the forces of our history and our conditioning. And it seems sometimes like a painfully slow process. But by beginning to cultivate mindfulness and this quality of presence, by coming back again and again, we can begin to see that there are choices we can make. We can't choose the content of our experience. We can't always choose what happens to us or what arises in us. But we can learn to make a skillful response to what happens, to what arises within us. But in order to do that, we need to be present. We need to be conscious. We need to be mindful. There's a story of a Zen student who goes to see his master, who's a great teacher and who he doesn't often have the opportunity to have an audience with. And he's been told he had this very precious opportunity to go and ask him one question have just a few minutes with his teacher. And he goes to the Zen master, he says, Master, please, can you tell me, what is the most important thing to cultivate in life? What is the most important thing to develop? And the master says, hmm, good judgment. And the student thinks, oh, yeah, that makes sense, good judgment, it's really know what's useful and skillful. But then he says to the master, well, how do you get good judgment? How do, how do you develop that? And the master says, experience. And I go, oh, experience, yeah, that makes sense. That's how you learn, yeah, experience. How do you get experience? He asked the master, who replied, bad judgment. <laughs> this is the process of our life. This is how we learn. We make mistakes, so-called, because of how and where we don't see clearly and truly. And in the process of making those mistakes, we experience pain at times, suffering. If we can use that as something to learn from, rather than regarding as somehow something that shouldn't have happened to us, then everything in our life and everything in meditation becomes the raw material for transformation. For the development, for the establishment of the wisdom, the understanding that we, we need and seek. And so there's this process that we're engaged in. I call it happiness training. When I was first uh, engaged in meditation practice and didn't really know how to explain it to people who hadn't done any what, what, what am I doing this for? Why am I spending all these hours sitting on a cushion and walking back and forth, apparently going nowhere and achieving nothing? And in the end, the most straightforward way I found I could explain it to friends or to family was to say, happiness training. It's like learning that, training that, developing that, which most directly conduces to and supports happiness. And that's really what we're engaged in here, happiness training. To see how our minds are so fragmented, so reactive, how much time we spend anywhere other than present, and how uncomfortable that is, how unsatisfying that is. To really see that is to begin to have a, have a commitment, to be willing to make the the effort to, to have the, 
the heart and the courage to make the effort that this requires. Because this is not an easy thing to undertake. You don't need me to tell you that after you've been here, even just for a day. Yeah, I think it was Spinoza, but it may have been one of the other well-known philosophers. I think it was Spinoza who said, all truly noble human endeavours are as rare as they are difficult. What we're doing here is something truly noble. And it's rare in that many people will never Spend a day in their life doing what you've already done. It's noble because this is the path. This is the way to the development, to the realization of our fullest potential as human beings. And it's challenging because, in order for that potential to be developed, we have to encounter all the things that make that difficult, all the things that mean. Or that have the result of most people not, or that lead to most people not wishing to even engage in this, or having engaged in it, not really giving themselves to it. We see in just a short period of time how strongly our mind is pulled and pushed, how little control we have over this that feels so close and so intimate to us. How much we imagine ourselves to be, this mind, and yet, who can get their mind to do what they tell it to? Who would put their hand up and say, yes, I got my mind to do exactly what I wanted to today? I wouldn't. Because our mind isn't like that, and yet, so far as we imagine that we're in control of it, We're constantly struggling, we're constantly battling, we're constantly fighting with our mind and our world. So coming back again and again, it's like training a puppy. It's like learning something anew. We need to be quite firm if we're training a puppy. If we want to train a puppy to heal to follow behind us. Because puppies need to learn that if they want to live in the human world and be safe. They can't just run about all the time. So we could imagine if we try to train a puppy and we see, we say, okay, heal. We put the puppy behind us. What does the puppy do? Does it stay there? Not a chance. It runs off at the first opportunity, seeing something interesting. Goes and chases a butterfly, sniffs a flower, decorates a tree, whatever it might be. Now what happens if we see the puppy running off and we say, bad dog, stupid dog, I told you to heal, come back here. If you do that again, I'm going to give you a good thrashing. Does that incline the puppy to want to stay behind us and connect with us, to hang around? Not likely, huh? The more we're hard on the puppy, the more it's likely to want to run away. Whereas if we see the puppies run off and we say, oh look, there you are, huh, sniffing a tree, chasing a butterfly, how interesting. Come back here. If we can establish an inner environment in which there's a friendliness and a kindness in the way we relate to our mind, rather than a harshness or a judgmentalness about it, rather than putting pressure on our mind, but creating a space that invites, that is inviting to our mind, to consciousness, because it's friendly, because it's interested, because it's non-judgmental. This is something that we're learning to do. And as and to the degree that we're able to do that, the mind more naturally inclines. Over time, the mind more naturally inclines to staying present, to being present, and to coming back when we are not present. It's a rather mysterious process. It's not something we do, and someone was reflecting on this in the small group today. How, you know, it's not like we decide to space out. It just kind of happens. And it's not like we decide to come back because we weren't even there at the time to decide it. We were unconscious. And yet it happens. Something about that intention to keep coming back is very powerful. But it doesn't happen in a linear or predictable way, which means it's very frustrating, or it can be, until we understand that. 
until we let go of the attempt to control it and see that we can support it and invite the mind to incline towards being present. And as we do so, it becomes more present. And we start to see also what makes it difficult to be present. How we're drawn so quickly and powerfully towards thoughts of the past and the future. Towards experiences that are pleasurable and desirable. And how strongly and powerfully we're repelled from experiences that are unpleasant or difficult. This dynamic, this process of being pulled towards that which is or appears to be pleasurable, being repelled or pushed away from that which seems to be unpleasant or in some ways threatening or scary, this is something we need to understand. Because if we don't, we'll spend our life unconsciously running towards anything that is or promises pleasure, and away from anything that is or threatens pain or discomfort. And most of us arriving here on retreat, when we sit down, what we notice our mind doing is that it's running. It's running towards and it's running away from. Constantly, 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 incessantly, exhaustingly. And we need to look at that. We need to see that. Without judging them, without being hard on ourselves for that fact, and yet being really clear about whether this experience is satisfactory, is satisfying to us, if it's nourishing and wholesome and delightful, and we really want to live that way, then, well, that's something we can choose. But if what we notice is that there's something unsatisfied, unsatisfying, uncomfortable about that, Mostly we avoid feeling that dissatisfaction, discomfort by not being present. And once we're present, we notice how uncomfortable it is to have the mind constantly agitated, filled with desire, craving, grasping, or resistance, aversion, reactivity, negativity. When we act out of those places of reactivity, then it leads to more of that same kind of reactivity. So when we act out of that place of greediness, neediness, give me, give me, give me, it leads to more of that. Which is why the Buddha points out that when we act from that place, it leads to more suffering, not to satisfaction. And when we act from that place of rejecting, of pushing away, of condemning, of judging, of hating, of anger, it leads to more reactivity, more anger, more hatred, more judgment. That pattern is strengthened. Again, which is why the Buddha pointed out that this leads to suffering, to more suffering. So what can we do with this situation? What we're asked to do is to see it clearly for what it is. To begin to stop feeding the reactivity begin to stop enacting those habitual patterns and start to contemplate them, to see them for what they are and to see whether there may be some other possibility available to us. So this idea, this could say interpretation or way we look at life that suggests happiness and satisfaction will come from accumulating as many pleasant experiences as is possible and from avoiding as many or hopefully all unpleasant experiences so far as possible that this is the basis of happiness that view that view is what leads to suffering Because even when we're successful, and sometimes we are temporarily, in getting more pleasant things and getting rid of more unpleasant things, the very agitation in the process, the very discomfort in the mind while we're doing it, if we really let ourselves feel it, we see 
It's not the satisfaction. It's not the peace. It's not the happiness that we seek. And yet it just goes on and on and on. And again, important not to judge yourself around this. There's a story of uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who was, uh, he, he told this story once of having visited a monastery, a Trappist monastery, I believe, in America. And this monastery had a great reputation for producing these really exquisite cheeses that uh, apparently had sort of quite, you know, I don't know if it was international, but sort of great fame in the land. And they were very proud of And they also baked fruitcake for the local village markets and sort of sold that to make money. And His Holiness talked about this time when he went to visit there. They kept offering him these pieces of apparently very exquisite and special cheeses. And he said, that whole day they kept giving me pieces of cheeses and I just wanted a piece of cake. (laughs) I feel it's a really lovely story because... His Holiness has been practicing meditation, doing this work for many, many years and decades, and yet still having the humility to recognize the tendency of mind that so easily, when offered cake, says, Sorry, when offered cheese, says, I want cake. Of course, if we'd been, been offered cake all day, odds are the mind would be saying, I want cheese. Is that something you recognize? I mean, here we are, sitting in meditation. And did anyone have the sense of, while sitting, I can't wait for the bell. In fact, I know at least one person did because they were telling me about it in the group today. I can't wait for the bell. What happens when the bell goes? We get up and do some walking. Great, walking meditation. Walking, walking, walking. I can't wait for the next sitting. Sitting, sitting. What's happening next? What about lunch? We get to lunch. And then we're thinking about having a nap. It's like there's this constant sense of we can't rest, we can't stop, we can't even enjoy our lunch. How many of you manage to really be present with your meal for even some of the time? I imagine some of you did, maybe all of you did. Wonderful. But maybe you also noticed how quickly we get pulled away, even from things we enjoy, even from things that we might love. So what we're asked to do in practice is to be aware of this process. To see how the pull of pleasure or the pressure from pain tends to condition us. It tends to condition our mind's state of well-being or otherwise. And here sometimes the experience is pleasurable. You've had nice moments, I imagine. Sometimes the experience is unpleasant. You've had unpleasant moments, I imagine. Sometimes it's kind of neutral in between, and I imagine you've had plenty of those as well. And here, that range of experience is exactly the same as the experience of your life. There will be some of this, some of that, and the other stuff that's in the middle. And from the point of view of meditation practice and Dharma teachings, we're saying all of that is worthy of our attention. All of that experience is worthy of meeting, of encountering, of being open to and interested in. And learning to become aware of and therefore not carried away by the urge to pursue the pleasurable and avoid the unpleasant. And how that plays out in practice. I mean, sometimes we're sitting there and our mind is spinning with some story of something that happened to us that was not fair or not right and we felt hurt or aggrieved. or And it's like the struggle goes on and then we notice and we think, I wish I could stop thinking if my mind could only be quiet. And we're resisting, we're struggling with the mind and it's painful. It's like, oh, just stop that. Give me a break. Did anyone wish their mind would just give them a break? Just five minutes, please, we think. It would be so nice, wouldn't it? And then, of course, at some point later, that pattern of thinking probably does stop because nothing goes on forever. This is something else we notice. Nothing goes on forever. So it stops and maybe even our mind becomes quiet and peaceful for a few moments. And it's like, wow, great. My mind is all calm and peaceful. I've got it. I've got it. I've done it. 
And we get so excited by the fact that there's this moment of calm, pleasant peacefulness that we start worrying, how did I make it happen? How will I keep it? What if it doesn't stay? What if it's gone tomorrow? And then we realize, of course, it's already gone because we're so busy thinking about how good it was that we weren't actually able to experience it. So even when what we were looking for turns up, we still get caught in a struggle around trying to keep it. So we're asked in practice to learn to be equally near to all things, to make peace with experience, to not be pushing it away or pulling it towards ourselves. Because that very process itself is where in truth the suffering occurs. Not in the presence or the absence of the different experiences. This is not an easy thing to learn. So again, we need patience. We need to take time with this. To learn to be able to meet our experience from a place of peacefulness, from a place of openness in ourselves, to cultivate that resource within rather than demanding it as an experience that's going to happen to us. And the fact that it's a relatively challenging endeavour is illustrated by a poem that I came across some years ago. It's entitled If, and it's not the poem by the very famous classical poem by Rudyard Kipling that you may have encountered that sort of describes all these wonderful qualities, noble qualities that one might have, you know, sort of that it's essentially he's talking to his son and saying, if you can sort of lines like walk amongst kings without losing your sort of common touch and yet walk amongst the common people without losing your virtue and all these wonderful things one could aspire to. This is a different kind of poem, but it's based on that. If you know it, you might have a sense of it. And it kind of that Rudyard Kipling's poem ends up in if you can do these wonderful things, then you know the world is yours and you'll be a man. And it's, it's very you know, uplifting in a certain sort of Victorian sort of way. Um, whereas this poem begins, well, as such, entitled If. And uh, if you can hear bad news without being upset, if during financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your friends go off on exotic holidays without a twinge of jealousy, if you can always enjoy eating what is put in front of you. If you can go to sleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill. If you can find peace just wherever you are. Then, you are probably a dog. <laughs> it's like the human condition is just so not like that, it seems, isn't it? And yet it's possible for us. We don't have to have a change of species. And perhaps we begin to notice, we begin to see that the capacity of mindfulness, of being present, is that it can see what's happening without having to become entangled in it. It can see even when we react to things without having to identify with those reactions. It's not that the reactions just stop, but that we can see, oh look, I'm reacting. And we realise from that point of view, oh, it's just a reaction, it's just what happens. I don't have to give myself to that, nor struggle with it. I can simply see, huh, look at this. We're not obliged to struggle with our experience. We can simply name it for what it is. Sometimes delightful, Sometimes uncomfortable, sometimes rather neutral and in between, neither one nor the other. So we talk in this practice of learning to let go, learning to let be. When we see ourselves 
grasping towards, trying to keep hold of something or pull something towards us, to learn to let it go. To not try and hold on to experiences. When we see ourselves resisting or pushing something away, we learn to let it be. To not try and not reject experiences that are difficult. And as we're able to do that, when we as we cultivate this, which is what we're doing by just coming back, stepping out of the story, out of the reaction, back to where we are again and again, just to see clearly what's going on. So we come back again and again to the breath, to the body, to being where we are. We start to see more clearly what's happening. We start to see what's going on. And what we'll begin to notice as we do that is that even in the presence of something uncomfortable, when we're not resisting that or fighting it or pushing it away, there's something in the simple quality of that presence itself. There's something in the the experience of simply being mindful, of being connected, of being in touch with, that speaks to us that offers something to us which is not dependent upon what the experience is that we're having and likewise when there's something difficult that we can be in the quality of presence we bring to the meeting of that difficult experience there's something in there which is not coloured by the difficulty which is not entangled in or defined by that particular difficulty. And that we can begin to rest in. We can begin to use as our reference point, as a place to which we can return or reconnect. Seeing how much we're pulled and pushed, pulled towards the future, pushed by the past. And what's going on in that? So much we're looking into the past, trying to see how it was things came to happen, so that we can ensure that in the future all the good things happen again and all the bad things don't happen at all. That's what the th- much of our thinking is concerned with, trying to figure out how it happened in the past so we can control it in the future. But of course, it's never quite that simple. It doesn't really work that way. We can learn a lot from the past. And of course, we do need to take account of what's going to happen in the future. Take care with response to that, with regard to that. But the real suffering, the real struggle or that the suffering that we experience is the loss of peace the when we're caught up in that reactivity it's so profoundly unpeaceful distressing in fact to our heart and the sense of trying to somehow get somewhere else as if there's always something that needs fixing or improving or changing that Living in that condition, there is no sense of rest or ease or well-being. And there's no opportunity to see and to know directly what it is that's here. If we're so concerned with what was and what will be, we cannot really know what is here, what is immediate. And the true happiness the true peace that is possible for us, that the Buddha's teachings point us to, that mindfulness and awareness is the pathway towards, is something that's revealed in and through our willingness to be right where we are. When we have the courage to let ourselves take that risk, to not be trying to fix it, 
to be not trying to get somewhere else or make something happen, not trying to produce something out of this experience that's going to be something we can take home and tell our friends how good it was or how tough it was or how well we did or how badly we did. Seeing so much of all of that is concerned with somehow creating a self-image, confirming or establishing a, a relationship to ourselves which we feel okay with. Because often at the core of all this activity is a sense of not feeling okay with who and what we are. And yet we don't know who and what we are. We've only believed the stories that we've been told and they're not true. Because the stories come from a past that's it's defined and driven by reactivity. And the truth of what we are is not that. And the suffering that we imagine to be about our experience not being what we want it to be. When we really see, when we really look deeply, what becomes more clear is that the suffering is actually born of our disconnection from where we are. That the deeper suffering is always the disconnection from where we are. The unwillingness to inhabit wholeheartedly and unconditionally the truth of our life. The truth of things as they are. And this reality, this truth is always here. It's always available. But we turn away from it. Unconsciously, unthinkingly. Usually even unintentionally. And in practice, as we keep turning back towards it, as we keep coming back into contact with our life directly and immediately, we can begin to receive what it is that life has to offer. We can begin to recognize the, the nourishment and the simple joy that is born of simply abiding, of trusting that we do not need to somehow fix ourselves or this world. Although there's plenty of room for wholesome endeavors and engagements to cultivate wholesome things in our lives, in ourselves and in our world, of course. And many useful and important activities we can be involved with, with regard to that. But at the very heart of the Dharma teachings, at the heart of all true and authentic spiritual teaching, is a pointing us back to where we are. To that which is not dependent upon what is happening. That is not defined by our endeavours, our successes and our failures, so called. But that comes from, but is revealed simply from the very heart of our life when we trust that. When we're willing to trust the truth of our life and surrender to that. Rather than giving the authority to our ideas of what we think should be or should not be. And spending our life pursuing them. Learning to befriend our life rather than to judge or condemn it. To befriend ourselves rather than to judge or condemn ourselves. And likewise each other. The peace that we seek is the peace that is found when we are no longer contending with life, when we're no longer putting our agenda into conflict with the way life is.
And as we do so, as we learn what that means, the happiness, the satisfaction, the end of suffering that we yearn for in our hearts is revealed. Not through anything we've done or made happen or produced, but simply because when we turn, when we're no longer turning our attention and putting all our efforts into trying to get somewhere else or make something happen or become someone different or other than what we are. There's a coming to rest. There's a profound quieting and stilling of the formations of heart and mind that cause suffering. And this is this is the happiness, this is the peace that our hearts yearn for, that the Buddha spoke of as the potential of each and every one of us to awaken to what is true. And in that awakening to be released, to be liberated by that truth, by that understanding. And then to be able to live in harmony with life as it is. Not to struggle with it or fight against it. And yet to seek nonetheless and all the same to contribute to the well-being of others and ourselves. To live our life from a sense of connection and relationship to all things. So let's just sit quietly together for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.